Welcome to Fleet Baptist Church. We hope you enjoy the latest in our teaching series. So this morning we're going to continue with thinking about the vision of the church. So a couple of weeks ago we gave some broad brush strokes of what the vision is and we were uh, reminding ourselves that the vision is to share the love of Jesus with the people of Fleet, to make disciples and to resource the wider church. That's up on our website if any time you want to have a look at it and all the teaching obviously is on there as well. Uh, so it's to share the love of Jesus with the people of Fleet, to make disciples and to resource the wider church. And we're taking each of those three aspects of the vision and making those specific aims. And we reminded ourselves a couple of weeks ago that this is not a new vision. This has been part of the DNA of fleet for generations, actually. That's why there's a church here, because it's what God wants to do with this town. And it's part of what we're called to. But those three parts we thought about last week, to be a church which honors, welcomes, and actively pursues the presence of God. And we were thinking about that last week, and we were all breathing a mighty sigh of relief when we got to the end and discovered that that's Sue's job, and that we don't have to worry about it, which is great, because Sue does that. And this week, we're going to be thinking about developing a culture of radical discipleship where living like Jesus is normal. So that's the thing we're thinking about this week, developing a culture of radical discipleship where living like Jesus is normal. I'm going to let you have a spoiler. We're going to hear from Nathan and Lee at the end. And we're all off the hook again. Because it's their job. Hallelujah. And yes, I'm being sarcastic. And next week, we'll be thinking about being a center of excellence as a resource to the wider body of Christ, locally, regionally, and nationally. Globally, sorry. So that's next week. This week, we're thinking about radical discipleship. Hands up if you describe yourself as a radical disciple. One. Two. Half up. One and a half. One and a half. So when it says we want to develop a culture of radical discipleship, where living like Jesus is normal, one and a half of us, don't apologize, it's honest, one and a half. We've got one and a half. Who thinks Jesus is radical? Let's ask it the other way. Who doesn't think Jesus is radical? Okay, so all of us. All of us think Jesus was radical. But our aim this year is that living like him is normal. So the aim is that by the end of this year, it won't be one and a half of us that would regard ourselves as radical disciples. Our aim is it would be all of us. Amen? Praise God that it's Lee and Nathan's job. <laughs> We're all off the hook. <laughs> so what I want to do is spend the next few minutes thinking about why it's not Lee and Nathan's job and why we're not off the hook. So we're going to read from John chapter 20, beginning at verse 19. Now this is where Jesus has appeared to the disciples. This is post-resurrection. So this is an appearance of Jesus to the disciples. Now, now remember, this is after they've spent three years with Jesus. They've seen the healings, the miracles, the signs, the wonders. They've seen him demonstrating the kingdom, proclaiming the kingdom, and then they've watched him die. And in that context, we have this encounter. On the evening of the first day of the week, 
when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood amongst them. Would you please notice that? The doors were locked. They were terrified. They have followed Jesus day and night for three years. They know him to be the Son of God. Amen? Amen. They know who he is. They've seen the reality of his presence. Some of them have even ascended the mountain of the Lord physically with him and watched his face be transfigured to reflect the glory of heaven. They know who he is. They have watched as he died, some of them from a distance. And they are terrified. But I want to suggest that that phrase, doors locked for fear of the Jews, is a phrase that many of us know, but I believe most of us will have read it or heard it as doors locked for fear of the Romans. It was their own people they were frightened of, not the enemy. And they locked themselves in a room because their own people had rejected them because they were radical for Jesus. That's quite a different reading of it, isn't it? But it's what it says. Jesus came and stood amongst them and he saw their fear and he said, peace be with you. Why did he say, peace be with you? Because he knew that they needed to know the peace of Jesus. They were terrified. They just watched their own leader, the Son of God, die in front of their eyes. And it was their own people who falsely testified against him at his trial. They were frightened. And we need to grasp that. They were really frightened. They had given up everything. They had given up family. They had given up their livelihoods. They had nothing to go back to. Everything seemingly had come to an end and everything seemingly was hopeless and helpless. And they were in a room together and all they'd got was one another. They were frightened. Now imagine, if you will, in that context, that you're one of those 11, and there may have been one or two extra people there, but you're one of the 11, and you are frightened, and you've bolted the door from the inside to make yourself feel safe, and suddenly, someone who wasn't there before stands in your midst. Fear would overcome you. And so Jesus says, peace. This is always saying, it's okay, it's okay, it's only me, it's okay. Breathe. <laughs> After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. He spoke peace over them, and then he demonstrated the truth of who he was. He gave them evidence. They saw 
They heard, then they saw. He spoke peace, and then he demonstrated the reality of who he was. I love what happens next. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. Why did he need to say it a second time? He's appeared in the room. They're terrified. He calms them down, shows them who he is. Oh, and then they got overjoyed. Overjoyed. You know, we're very, very good at doing that in this country. We get exuberant in church. Every now and again, I mean, we, sometimes we really, really go for it, and we go... And, that, and occasionally, I, I've even seen this happen. I mean, that, that, I'm telling you, that's overjoy. And that needs calming down. I mean, I can tell you in a couple of weeks' time when we head off to India, we're not going to have any of those worries there. No joy expressed there. You don't look convinced. A couple of years ago, I was at a pastor's conference in India. Got about 500 pastors in the room. And joy hit the room. I'd started preaching and joy hit the room. And it wasn't just a hand in the air kind of joy. It was over joy. They were so exuberant. I tell you, no exaggeration, it took about 40 minutes before they calmed down enough for me to carry on preaching. I actually think they were onto something. They knew how to stop me. They got excited. <laughs> they drowned me out. But you know, the presence of the Lord had come into that room. It's fascinating, actually, because it was a bunch of pastors who no one told me until after the meeting that they didn't believe in the Holy Spirit. They were conservative evangelical pastors, and I was teaching on gifts of the Spirit. And they didn't tell me until afterwards. But when I started speaking, and I became aware that actually it was a bit of a sort of spiritually dry atmosphere in the room, I told them a few stories of healings and miracles and signs and wonders and asked them who wanted to receive a touch from heaven and every single one of them said yes. And 500 pastors started speaking in tongues immediately, instantly. Now, I just thought that that was normal. And they were overjoyed because suddenly their eyes had seen the reality of the presence of God. Their ears had heard the truth because I was preaching the word of God. But suddenly their eyes had seen the reality of the presence and they were overjoyed. The word overjoy means exuberant, excessive joy. And look around you. A bit like that. <laughs> so overjoyed, so exuberant were the disciples that Jesus had to calm them down. Peace. <laughs> and I read it that when they, Jesus first came in the room and they were so filled with fear, it was a kind of peace, be, peace be with you, peace be with you. It's okay, it's okay. And then a few minutes later when they realize who it is, hey, calm down, it's okay. 
Funny, isn't it, how those same words with different intonation can mean such different things? Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive Holy Spirit. You see, the gift of Holy Spirit is fundamentally important for the life of discipleship. We cannot live as a disciple of Jesus, let alone a radical disciple of Jesus, without Holy Spirit. If Jesus himself was unable to function on earth without Holy Spirit, how arrogant would we be to think we can manage without Holy Spirit? If we read through the Old Testament, the word ruach means breath of God or spirit of God. It's translated both ways. And right at the beginning, God breathed and creation happened. It was the breath of God, the spirit of God that caused that to happen. All the way through the Old Testament, we see references to God breathing, the ruach, the spirit, the breath of God. Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones where the prophet is told to prophesy and there is unity as it all comes together and there's a covering of skin comes over it. But finally he's told to prophesy to the breath, to the Ruach of God. And God's breath is breathed into the body and it comes alive. Jesus went to the disciples as the word of God and he stood there in their presence, the very word of God, and then he breathed the spirit of God into them. Because he knew that they needed to be filled with Holy Spirit. Notice that this was several days before Pentecost. When Jesus was conceived, he was conceived by Holy Spirit. So from the moment of conception, he had the Holy Spirit within him. However, Jesus needed the anointing of Holy Spirit upon him at his baptism before he could do his earthly ministry. These disciples, at their point of realizing that Jesus was the one who was born again, that Jesus has been raised from the dead, they needed to have Holy Spirit breathed within them so that they could be born again spiritually, so that they knew that they were children of God. They had to have the Holy Spirit on the inside. So he breathed on them, and then a few days later, at the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and anointed them to equip them for works of ministry. Isn't God kind? And Jesus said, having breathed on them, if you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. He gave them authority. When Holy Spirit comes upon someone who has the word, they have the authority of heaven. That's called discipleship. So followers of Christ, disciples, they do the things that he did, but they also worship him as Lord and King. Jesus is alive. He's our risen Lord, amen? But you know, sometimes that true belief that he is our risen Lord, that he is God, he is divine, sometimes our understanding and our belief in his divinity can distort our understanding of his humanity. Let me explain what I mean. The, 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 the fact that he is both God and man is a hard doctrine to grasp. 
He's fully divine, whilst also fully human. See, moral philosophers will deny his divinity and say he was a great teacher. But Christians often do it the other way around. We have a distorted view of his humanity. People somehow picture Jesus as, as kind of looking human, but not really being fully human. We sort of think he didn't really walk. He perhaps floated two inches above the ground. Never really got mud on his shoes, you know. When it was raining, he didn't really get wet. We just have this weird picture, don't we, of Jesus? I was talking in the first service about the Ready Breck glow. Who remembers Ready Breck? I could ask the same question, who's over 40? And probably have the same hands up. <laughs> in the first service on the front row, there was a bunch of 20-somethings, and they would just look blankly at me. Not one of them knew what I was talking about. But Ready Break, for those of you who don't know, as I grew up, it was a breakfast cereal for kids. It was like porridge for kids. And the advert on the television showed that if you eat Ready Break, you had the Ready Break glow. And they depicted a child that had eaten his ready break and had got like an orange glow around him and went off to school in his blazer. I don't know why he hadn't got a coat on, but in his blazer, glowing, nice and warm because of his ready break. And the other children who had not had ready break looked really cold and depressed. I think somehow we imagine Jesus like that. And it's depicted in art as he's got this weird sort of glow around him. And, and somehow what that does is it reinforces this belief that, yeah, he was human, but he was God, so he wasn't really human. Jesus was fully human. And Philippians 2 tells us that he gave up. He gave up his divinity to become fully human. Now, he could have taken hold of it, but he had surrendered it. Jesus was fully human. The song Away in a Manger, Little Lord Jesus, no crying he made. What utter rot. I mean, Mary would have been really worried if he hadn't cried and thought something was wrong with him. He was fully human. He experienced all the same emotions that you and I do. He got hungry. You read in Luke chapter 4 when he was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. Why was it that the devil tempted him with bread? Because he was hungry. He got thirsty. As Jesus hung on the cross, he said, I thirst. He knew joy. So many occasions when Jesus was overjoyed when he saw someone hearing and believing. When he saw people healed, delivered, set free, he was filled with joy. But he also knew sorrow. When Lazarus, his friend, died, Jesus wept. He felt happiness. He felt pain. And I want to suggest I believe he also felt fear. Read about the Garden of Gethsemane. His birth was perfectly normal, even if his conception was slightly unusual. He couldn't walk or talk any more than any other newborn baby could. He was every bit as human as you and me. That means that Jesus could only do the things he did 
by maintaining an incredibly close walk with God. 100% obedience. So when we're thinking about developing a culture of radical discipleship where living like Jesus is normal, what do we mean? We mean developing a walk with God that is so close. Not that we're spared pain because neither was Jesus. But that we walk so close with God that 100% obedience to the will and the word of God is possible. Because Jesus lived to demonstrate it. He said to the disciples, I am sending you as the Father sent me. John 14, he said, I'm sending you to do the things I've done and you'll do even greater things than these because I'm going to fill you with my Holy Spirit. That means, friends, there is not a single thing that Jesus did that we read about in the Gospels. There's not a single thing that you and I can't do. That's quite a thought, isn't it? There is not one single thing that Jesus did that we cannot do and he wants us to do even more. He says, you will do greater things than these. So what do we do? Well, I suggest what we do is we put all of our effort then into building the church, make it as good as we can possibly build, make it. Make it as appealing as possible to people out there so that actually they'll come in and they'll be part of this great thing. Amen? No. Jesus expressly said he will build his church. And the problem is that over the last 2,000 years, the church has ignored him and said, we will build your church. Jesus, would you grow us? Just please grow us so that we'll be more mature. Grow us in our faith. Grow us. Grow us so that we'll be more like you. Jesus, would you do that while we build the church? But he expressly said it should be the other way around. He said, you make disciples. I will build my church. Live as disciples and lead other people to be disciples. That's our job. To live as disciples who lead other people to be disciples. Matthew 28, 19. And you don't make disciples by trying to build church. However, if we are committed to making disciples, a vibrant church is the result. Because Jesus builds his church amongst his disciples. In effect, Jesus is saying, I believe, you get on with what I told you to do, and I will build my church. So the question, I believe, as we look at this year with 2020 vision, I'm sorry, I've been trying to resist saying that for three weeks. The question is not what should the church look like in these days to attract people? The question is, how should I live my life? What does it mean for me to be a disciple? And the answer is so simple. You study the life of Jesus. 
and you do everything he did and everything he tells you to do. It's actually quite simple when you put it like that, isn't it? Why is it so hard to do it? <laughs> well, because there's also someone else that's trying to take you off track. Because he knows you're a threat to him. And every single thing you say and do is going to try and knock you off track. But if you stick close to Jesus, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So we study the life of Jesus and we say, actually, how did he do it? Well, he was the word of God and he lived according to the word of God. Amen? Jesus was the Word of God and he lived according to the Word of God. How do I evidence that? Well, we know he was the Word of God because John 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. We know that he was the Word of God. But in the wilderness, when he was being tested and tempted by the devil, everything the devil came against him with, he retorted with the Word of God. And we need to be those who understand that in Jesus, the body of Christ is the living word of God, the living expression of his Father's will. We need to be in Christ, who is the word of God, but we also need to be living according to the word of God. We need to be speaking the word of truth over every single situation. We need to recognize that the answer to everything is in the word of God. We need to be people of the word. Amen? But Jesus was also filled with the Holy Spirit. I've already referred to it at his baptism. As he came up out of the water, heaven was torn open. And under an open heaven, Holy Spirit came and anointed Jesus. The one who had Holy Spirit within him from conception because he was conceived by Holy Spirit. The anointing of God under an open heaven came upon him and then his ministry began. The word was empowered by the Spirit. And we need to be people of the word who are empowered by Holy Spirit. Jesus shared his life with a small group of other people. That's called fellowship. And we need to make sure that we learn how to fellowship together. We learn how to be real together. We learn how to share our lives, good times and bad times. We share life together. That's living like Jesus. And every single day, Jesus went and he told people about the kingdom and he demonstrated the reality of the kingdom with signs and wonders and healings and miracles. That's called mission. So we're word and spirit people who fellowship together and are on a mission to make Jesus known. That's what it means to be a radical disciple of Jesus. And I need to tell you, it is costly. Discipleship is about copying Jesus, and that is all about obedience. Philippians 2 verse 8 says that he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. I used to really struggle with that verse. You think, why does it need to say even death on a cross? Just to say someone's obedient to death is enough, surely. You need to be obedient to death to be willing to die because God told you to. And not only to be willing to, but to actually do it. That's obedience. But you see, crucifixion, death on a cross, was the most horrendous death possible. It was humiliating. 
It was degrading. It was long. And it was painful. And he was willing not only to die, but to pay the ultimate price of the most painful, humiliating death possible. Utter, utter obedience. Discipleship is costly. In the Garden of Gethsemane, I believe Jesus was battling with his feelings. Knowing that crucifixion lay ahead of him. He talked to Father and said, let this cup pass from me. Is there any other way, God? And yet, your will be done. That's counting the cost, understanding the cost, and saying, even so, let it be your way, Father. You see, discipleship is not about making decisions based on your feelings. And this is really important. I'm going to come into land with this. If discipleship was about making decisions based on your feelings, I don't think Jesus would have gone to the cross. Because he made his feelings clear in Gethsemane. Father, I don't want to do this. His feelings were saying, don't do it. It's going to hurt. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Do not be led by your feelings. Be led by the word of God. Be led by the truth of God. Be led by the Spirit of God. And then even when we don't feel like doing something because actually we don't like it or we don't want to do it or actually it, the, the thing that we're standing before us might seem great and feel good for 30 seconds and then feel terrible afterwards. We don't want to live led by our feelings. We want to be those who are true disciples, who are led by the truth of the word of God, empowered to do it by the spirit of God, passionately encouraging one another as we live lives of fellowship, together engaging in the mission of being disciples who make disciples. It may involve you doing things that are difficult or painful. But it will grow you. And it will bless others. As Lee and Nathan come up, I'll finish with this. John chapter 2 and verse 5. I love this narrative about the wedding at Cana in Galilee. When Jesus is about to embark on his earthly ministry, his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. And those simple words contains such truth for us as we seek to be disciples of Jesus. Do whatever he tells you to do. And sometimes it might put a risk to you. These poor guys at the wedding were serving the wine. They'd run out of wine. And then Jesus says to them, get the filthy ceremonial washing jugs. Fill it with water and go serve it to the guests. You imagine We've run out of coffee. And someone says, go get the mop cleaning bucket. Fill it with water. 
stick it in those flasks and see if they notice. That's the nearest equivalent without being too gross. Who'd want to drink the coffee? They took it to the top table. These servants, I suspect, were already preparing to receive their P45. Or worse. When they pour it out, and the master of ceremonies takes a sip and says, this is rather unusual. Normal etiquette is you serve the good stuff first. And when people have had a little bit too much to notice, you serve the cheap plonk. But you've saved the best till last. Because the heaven's principle is that the best is always yet to come. That's discipleship. And that's what we're looking at this year. To develop a culture of radical discipleship where living like Jesus is normal. Lee is going to come. He's our associate pastor with oversight of discipleship and explain what he's going to be helping us do into this year. And straight after that, Nathan, who's our associate pastor uh, for uh, mission and outreach and building up the family, is going to talk about what he's going to be helping us do as we think about these things this year. Thanks, guys. One, two, yeah. Thank you so much, Chris. Um, as I was thinking about what I was going to say, I thought I would define first what radical discipleship is. And as I was thinking about it, I immediately came to the junction that oftentimes the word radical has negative connotations. But in reality, what radical means is to be two foot in, two feet in. It's to be on fire. It's to choose not to be lukewarm and it's to choose not to be cold, but instead to be fully devoted to a thing. And the word disciple simply just means to be a student. And the word disciple has the same root words as the word discipline. And so it, it comes together and it's an on-fire, disciplined student. And as Chris said, who is the subject that we're studying? The subject that we're studying is Jesus Christ. And the disciplines that we use are the disciplines that enable us to remain on fire. It doesn't, we don't, if you carry on in your life, you won't just remain on fire. But it's the disciplines that allow you and enable you to keep that fire burning and growing. And what are those disciplines? Those disciplines are, there's disciplines of abstinence and there's disciplines of activity. Disciplines of abstinence, an example of that is fasting. So you deny yourself to draw near to God. But then there's also disciplines of activity. So that's praying, that's worshipping, that's spending time. So you're doing something in order to draw near. And so that's what we want to help every single person in this church do. We want everyone to grow as an on-fire disciplined student of Jesus. And so we have things like, prayer meetings on, on Tuesday at 12 o'clock. I know that's difficult for most people, but if you can, we'd love to see you there. Come along and we're praying to, to, to just see his kingdom come and see heaven come. We have connect groups. We have amazing connect group leaders that, that, that are dedicated to help us grow. And so if you're, there's, it's spread out throughout Tuesday and Wednesday. If you're available, let me know and we'll get you connected in.
we have, we're, we're planning right now a discipleship course. So if you feel like you want to go deeper and lay a, lay a foundation again, we'll be having those things. So we have all of these things that run. We also have women's ministry that's thriving. And the men's ministry has been a bit dormant for a little while. But we're, we're also going to be reviving that in this season. So there's many things in the pipeline to make us an on-fire disciplined students. And if you're interested, if you have any ideas, please do come and let me know. And I'm just going to hand it over to Nathan. Thank you. Good afternoon. I can now say that we've made it past 12. <laughs> Keep my eyes. I was planning to say good morning, but I took a look at the clock. So I want to give you a quick overview of the areas that I'm responsible for. And towards the end of last year, I shared a little bit about of what we were doing as mission. And in part of mission, John and I have been getting together and just talking about how we can see fleet look like Jesus. That we can see heaven come to earth and see fleet look like heaven, actually. Because that's the goal, isn't it? It's not to see this kit, this church look like heaven, but also to, to overflow into people's homes, people's lives. Because that, that is his will and that's our goal, isn't it? how we do that and we had a great time last year we were going out once a week once on a Wednesday afternoon and once on a Friday evening and you know what it was fun I said this last time we enjoyed it we had a small group for us and we would just spend time worshiping we didn't have any training or equipping or this is how you do it this isn't how you do it but we just worship Jesus we just wanted to put our face on him because we don't ever want to do this because we know it's what we're all called to isn't it it's a huge part of what Jesus told us to do make disciples and go and that's what we're all called to we all have a part to play in this but we don't want to do it out of manipulation we don't want to do it out of religion. We want to do it out of love. So for you and for me, it's about praying, Jesus, I want to overflow with love for these people. And if we're doing it for the wrong motives, I don't believe that it will happen. It won't, we won't be blessed. We want to do it and we want to see fruit. So we want to go out with overflowing with love that first comes from him. So allowing ourselves to be loved and then loving people, meeting them where they're at. There is no formula. There is no formula. There is no direct words you've got to say. It's just meeting people where they're at and loving them. So I want to encourage you to, to come along. We're, John and I are going to get together this week, and we're going to sort out dates for the new year and just sort out when we can go out and just continue to just be a presence on the street and see the atmosphere change. And Mark's been wonderful and opened up Living Stones for us. So we meet there, we worship, and then we go out from there. You know, and I've even worshipped outside of Living Stones. I took my guitar, and we've done it a few times. And, you know, the response has been incredible. You know, we're literally fixing our eyes on Jesus, people getting their phones out and recording us and things like that. And other ladies just walking past with their trolleys and she's like, I want to give money. There's something about you guys. I just want, and she, I, we didn't have anything open. She places a two pound behind us. And, it's like, and we, we gave it straight to charity, but people feel the atmosphere changing. So if you want to be a part of it, come, speak to us, speak to myself, speak to John. And John and I are also looking at projects for this year to look at how we can make our heart of this church a mission culture. So when you're in the workplace, when you're with your family, that it's not a thing we're afraid to do, but it's just natural. That we just love Jesus so much that we just don't care. We just say, oh, you know, I've got to tell you about Jesus. I've got to tell you. Does that make sense? So it's not out of nothing other than love. And in terms of the whole family environment, you know, heaven, when heaven touches earth, heaven, earth looks like family, correct? And we know it, Jesus told us to pray. He said, when you pray, pray our Father. It's not my Father. You know, it's not just me. I'm, I'm his special favored kid. It's our Father. And that means you and I and us and them are all children of God and therefore we're all family. And, therefore, and that goes beyond the Sunday morning because it's difficult on a Sunday morning to have a conversation, isn't it? You know, we've got lots of different things going on, lots of noises, people packing up. And that's where it takes for us to have intentionality about meeting up with each other, seeing, coming alongside each other and just and being, being intentional. You know, and for me, in my experience of church, I have a lot of people in sometimes present, more, but more historical people saying, well, nobody talks to me. And that shouldn't stop you from talking to other people. I want to encourage you to leave your comfort zone and just approach somebody else and say, hey, how are you doing? 
That's all it takes, and then just let the conversation flow from there. But in terms of what we're going to be doing as a church, we've got some dates set out from for 2000, what are we in, 2020? It is 2020. <laughs> I was going to say 2019. We've got some dates set out for 2020 for us as a church family to come together with the agenda just to hang out, just to chill out, just to talk, just to have fun together, and just to enjoy each other's company. So the first one of those dates, you'll hear more about the other dates in times to come. So we've got one in um, July, I think, set out, but the first one is Easter Sunday. So Easter Sunday, we have booked out Compassion's building, and after church, I think it's an all-in Sunday, isn't it? Oh, we're going to have the service. At, okay, so we're going to have a service at Compassion, and shortly after, we'll have a lunch together. So we're going to have a lunch at Compassion House as well as a Sunday service set on Easter Sunday, which is great. So a date for your diary. And like I said, we want to carry on initiatives like that, where just the intention is for us to hang out as family. And on another note, we've got another event that I'm really keen to go to. Rachel and I went there last summer to kind of scout it out. We went out for a day. It's, a, it's an event called River Camp, which has been going for about 20 years, from, run from the Elim movement from a guy called David Campbell. And we went up, and we weren't all that taken back by what it was until we got to the evening meeting. And our minds were blown. And we've been to a lot of conferences, you know, believe me when I say it. We've been to a lot of events. We've been to a lot of festivals. And there was nothing like this place. Like the, the worship, the atmosphere, the teaching was just, was just utterly next level. And we're going to see 2020. There's Heidi Baker, who's going to be the main speaker this year. And you've got Banning Liebscher and more TBA. He sounds like a really good, uh, good speaker. So Banning Liebscher is the director of Jesus Culture as well as Dave Campbell, who heads up the Elim, Elim movement, and he's hilarious. He's probably the funniest guy I've actually heard speak before. Um, so it's held in Worcestershire. It's £120 for five days, which actually is pretty good. Um, so if you are interested, there's kids' work covered up until 18. But let us know if you are interested, and it's the 26th of August to the 31st of August, I believe.